Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Megan Parker, who was one of the co-founders of Working Dogs for Conservation before she, um, before her current position. She's currently the project director with the Center for Large Landscape Conservation, and we're going to be talking about thinking bigger within the world of conservation detection dogs. I am super excited to share this interview with you all. Meg and I went for a brief walk and grabbed some coffee. I was on my way to Salt Lake City um, to go to Denver, to go to Nebraska, to start my field work. She was about to pick up her son from uh, returning from Mongolia and then head off to Rwanda. So it is a brief interview that is just chock full of ideas. And I'm so excited to see where the discussions that Meg sparks in this um, interview go. Um, but before we get to it, we are going to dive into our science highlight. So this paper um, is titled Factors That May Affect the Success of Scent Detection Dogs Exploring Non-Conventional Models of Preparation and Deployment. This was written by Sarah Elizabeth Biossier, Lina C. Fang, and Nicholas J. Rudder. Um, was published in Comparative Cognition and Behavior Reviews in 2019. And our um, our little synopsis says traditionally scent detection dogs have been bred, raised, and trained at designated training facilities. More recently, several organizations, primarily in the conservation detection industry, have employed non-conventional models of scent detection dog selection and preparation. In this commentary, they highlighted three of those non-conventional methods, which are the community-based model, in which community members and their privately owned dogs are trained for deployment, then the community-fostered model, in which puppies live with foster families during training, and in the shelter-based model in which dogs are sourced from shelters and rescues. Perhaps the most widely recognized community-based approach is that used by search and rescue organizations. And this is a well-established approach that typically deploys volunteer dog handler teams after they have completed relevant training and certification. There's some benefits in um, increased social and welfare to the dog, lower costs for breeding and sourcing the dogs, and lower cost of de deployment potentially. There's also a lower burden of rehoming the dogs since the dogs can just go back to being pets for their people. The, however, it can be tricky to source dogs and plan well. Um, for example, if a dog, if a gap opens up on a given team, um, or there's an increase in work for whatever reason, it can be hard to source and get a dog trained up quickly when relying on community members and volunteers. Next up, there's Community Foster. Penn Vet Working Dog Center is a great example of this. The dogs live in families but go to school every day, so they get the benefits of social and welfare um, support at home, plus expert training while at school. The pro trainers get to focus on what they need, and basic manners are covered at home. Logistically, this can be kind of challenging and does require a lot of support. It reduces breeding and raising costs, but sourcing the dogs can be hard, and again, you need a, quite a bit of support from kind of a solid network of volunteers to foster the dogs and also um, infrastructure in order to be able to send these dogs back to school. Um, really, really cool model, but, you know, for example, something that here at Can on Conservationists, I don't see how we would be able to um, do something like that anytime soon because we don't have the capacity to send dogs out to training and then, or uh, to uh, home life and then come back to us for training on a day-to-day
daily or even a couple times a week sort of basis. And then there's the source from shelter and rescue model. I think most of our listeners are pretty familiar with this. This is how I got my dog Barley. It's how rogue detection teams gets their dogs. It's how Skyless Ecology gets their dogs. Working Dogs for Conservation gets the majority of their dogs this way. Um, Very common within the field. And there can be some reduced costs because obviously you're not putting a bunch of sunk costs into a puppy. You're also not having to maintain a breeding program. However, it can also be really tricky to figure out um, how to screen these dogs, how to source them, and can require quite a bit of relationship building with shelters and rescues. Um, There are other upsides, though, to sourcing an adult dog. Uh, As mentioned in our episode of Skyless Ecology, for example, you can screen the dogs for prey drive. Um, And if they're a relatively mature adult, you can get a really good idea of what their personality and temperament and work ethic is right off the bat versus, you know, acquiring or breeding a puppy and then waiting to see how teenagerhood shakes out at the other end and potentially sinking two years of training and support into a puppy that may not work out. So the biggest caveat that both the authors mentioned and that, of course, uh, caught my attention is that <laughs> the success rates and how they differ for each group is unknown. Um, it's This seems like the sort of data that probably could be found um, or could be collected, but um, as far as we know, nobody has done it yet. So without further ado, let's go and get into it with Dr. Megan Parker from the Center for Large Landscape Conservation. Patreon Book Club is in full swing. We just finished up Detector Dogs and Scent Movement by Tom Osterkamp and are about to start Canine Ergonomics, The Science of Working Dogs. To join our book club for three bucks a month, head on over to patreon.com slash canine conservationists. We also offer monthly group coaching sessions for aspiring handlers, puppy raisers, and pros, as well as a monthly rotation of free webinars, workshops, and roundtables with experts. Um, Again, three bucks a month, up to 25 bucks a month, kind of depending on what level of support you want to um, give and receive, check that out at patreon.com slash canine conservationists. I hope to see you join us there soon. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Meg. Um, what I basically wanted to ask you about is on the on James's podcast, um, you said that one of the things you'd love to see our field doing is thinking bigger. Can you expand on that? Do you have any specific ideas? Just, just go. Oh, hey, thanks, Kayla. Um, I do think we need to think bigger, all of us who are in this field, partly because it's still nascent you know we're still at the beginning of figuring out what dogs can do how to do this best and how they can serve conservation and science and so you know we can work with academics more and ask better questions we can sample better I think most of us on every project are oversampling Mm -hmm. in the way I think we can do more precise better sampling and get more area covered as well as like more reps just by like working with biostatisticians and getting better study designs rather than doing it the way oh we just always do transects okay let's just do transects and so I think really um, getting good study designs and that's whether we're working with contractors or with academics or doing our own projects I think we're we're doing a really great job of expanding the field and exploring disease and mechanisms of disease Um, but I think we can answer bigger questions for epidemiology like how is disease zoonotic disease moving across landscapes and I think dogs are you know so well suited to that also being really careful working with vets and all of that to make sure we're doing this right Um, I just think expanding our teams is also part of 
thinking bigger and that's having really good veterinary medicine really good study design really good partners and I think we're at the point where we shouldn't be just taking anything that comes along there's going to be projects that are really well suited for dogs and there's going to be projects that dogs probably shouldn't be working on and being able to filter that as the field expands, I think we also need to be looking forward. We need to be looking at how dogs can serve questions of climate change, mm -hmm. climate adaptation. You know, species are moving around, trying to get to higher ground and farther north, and dogs are great at answering those questions. Like, historically, where have species been? Because dogs can find scat that's old, and they can find a sign from where animals have been and uh -huh. are, are not currently living. And those are going to be really important questions. We can even like, think about carbon sequestration and, and, you know, questions of how we are living on this planet. We can look at ecological corridors and there's really good science that's emerging on like how, how do we pick species to look at like what an ecological corridor should be between protected areas how wide should it be let's look at that science and then apply dogs to get the information necessary to put into those models so I think as as scientists develop good models dogs can be such a great answer for providing data on the ground verifying things and you know collecting data that like asks the next questions we can be doing more in freshwater and saltwater ecosystems with dogs where there's really huge pinch points with climate change and we can just be asking like even how dogs can serve human communities better especially human communities at risk of climate change you know I think we can just do we can think bigger and we need to stop doing things the way we've always done them I think more and more people are uh, finding that they just want purebred dogs rather than <laughs> the dogs that are um, at an increased risk of you know needing rescue because it's easier to work with breeders and puppies and I think we need to do a better job of welfare and training we just need to do a better job all the way around of thinking beyond what ha is easiest and the way things have always been done and I mean for me the whole goal is serving conservation and what needs to be served and also what like where are you in the world and what are the issues there how can you fit in with some really deep thought and discussions with different partners more partners and kind of like higher level thinking yeah that that totally makes sense and um, I know it's something I've thought about as far as like one of my dreams for canine conservationists would be to get us absorbed by a larger organization so that we don't have to be the ones who grow and hire the data scientist and hire the chemist and hire the veterinarian and all of that because I, I don't know if we're ever going to be making enough money to have that sort of budget, but I would love to, like I love the idea of working at you know a biological research station as the dog team who can be embedded in with these larger, more diverse teams. Is that kind of, like that's one of my dreams, does that kind of gem with what you're thinking of? Yeah, I think I certainly think that that's one avenue to pursue. And, but I think all of us are just in different places. We're in different places in our careers. We're in different places geographically. And looking around to see what works, like what is needed in Australia, what's needed in Asia, what's needed in Africa. You know, what are the big conservation questions that you're running up against? And how can dogs serve that? So I think there's something about a very um, 
empathic mindset that can also come into play. And I think all of us are in conservation for partly that reason. We have we have empathy with the planet and with what we see as problems. We're not doing it for, for the money. We're not doing it just because we like to work dogs, although that's a big part of it. But like, how can we serve this like these bigger questions and regionally how are we most effective i also think we need to stop traveling so far with our dogs it's a huge carbon imprint i think we need to start really helping our partners develop the capacity um you know get off get our dogs off the plane and start like helping programs in different areas do better work and transfer technology so they can actually get up and go and be independent support people where we can across the world and um like learn to yeah where our expertise are the best learn to offer that and not um not mantle over you know these these small bits that can actually provide a lot of conflict rather than just like let's just see what needs to get done and get it done yeah yeah do you have any um like pie in the sky dream projects or something that you would love to see dogs involved in or someone taking up as a challenge or project that you haven't seen anyone doing quite yet Oh, I think there's a, about a million, like right off the top of my head, what I'm thinking of is like multi-species, like some of the underserved species, I guess, you know, the, the um, you know, like what about, uh, you know, marine invertebrates, what's happening on in tidal flats, what's happening in freshwater estuarian zones that is really um, these areas that are high risk from climate change, what's happening in areas with these severe weather events that are occurring more and more frequently you know right here in Montana we saw a three or four hundred year flooding event take out all the roads around Yellowstone what do we be, need to be doing better and what's at risk when our infrastructure fails and actually like just really trying to get ahead of that but looking at some of the species that aren't charismatic and sadly don't have the kind of funding I mean as you know like we always struggle with trying to get invasive funding and that's that's a shame because invasives are a huge threat especially to island communities but like find okay who's doing really good in island invasive work there's lots of groups so like pairing with them and taking it forward I think there's lots of groups that do a good job of um I'm thinking of Rogue right now like they do a really good job of reaching out Mm -hmm. and contacting people and just saying like hey you know this is you may want to think about it doing it this way look this is how dogs work and actually it's quite entrepreneurial but that's an awesome way of just connecting with academics or projects that are also in their silos doing things the way they've always done them like you know put on a radio collar follow them during this time of day well radio collars have gotten way better and more advanced and we get better data but what if we pair that with how dogs collect data and how what if we you know work with a biostatistician so we're just really effective and doing cutting-edge science that actually serves conservation I mean I don't know maybe limpets are the next frontier I have no idea (laughs) idea. yeah my first thought when you said tidal flats was gosh we're gonna need some better booties but (laughs) but I'm up for it that sounds fun (laughs) Um, yeah and I love you know one of the things that I think 
pretty much all of us except for Nayo <laughs> forget about is toxicology. And that was one of my first thoughts when you were mentioning some of these human communities. Is that one of the things that was on your mind or what else comes up for these human communities that may need climate change assistance? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point. And, Cli- and Nayo has worked with groups and supported that for a long time. It's like dogs detecting different sort of fertilizers and poisons that are used in poaching, which is, um, you know, takes obvious real care as a trainer and handler mm-hmm. um, and can be done really effectively. The, the group in Spain does a beautiful job. You know, that can be really effective across Africa. I think we can do more out-of-the-box thinking about things like poaching and um, human trafficking. That often goes hand-in-hand. Hand. When new roads go in and, you know, we are going to see double the footprint of new roads over the next 25 years around the world. Think about that. Like, double. Think about how many roads there are. Double that. And two-thirds of these are going to be, like, new footprints in Asia. That's that's going across really important areas. What do we need to be doing to collect data to get biodiversity baseline standards? And what can we do for the communities that are at risk of, you know, having their relatively intact forest invaded by some sort of electrical line, right? As we green up and get more and more, like, turn to more electrical solutions for our energy, well, that's a lot of transmission lines. What do we need to be doing when we're producing electrical power? There's obviously a lot of wind farm studies, which you're familiar with, but, like, what do we need to, like, think further ahead? What is that going to be like as we build more roads, more transmission lines, more railways? Like, what's at risk? And, you know, there's species at risk certainly but there's also communities at risk and what what is it when you break up like an intact forest for a community well we know zoonotic disease moves faster we know human trafficking moves in we know there's a lot of impacts and where can we bridge that sort of human ecological um, nexus with with getting data and getting it ahead of time yeah and it seems like one of the things you're also mentioning is you know, thinking with with a direction in mind, and not just always going in and counting, not just going in and doing presence absence, not just always monitoring. And while those are all valid and important and whatever, and I think one of the problems that you know myself, I certainly fall into this, and probably many of our conservation dog handler listeners run into, is we're often operating from this this standpoint of scarcity and panic that like, oh my gosh, a a contract came through my inbox. I have to take it. And, you know, one of the things that it sounds like is going to be really important going forward to this is figuring out how to be more proactive and build more of those partnerships so that we don't have to operate from this standpoint of scarcity. And we can really show the power of this, uh, this tool and help people with it. Yeah, that's, that's true. As well as the, uh, we all need to eat, right? And we all want our jobs. And especially when you really like doing what you're doing, you take the job. And we also need to be more generous in like, hey, this is not the right job for me. Actually, this awesome group that I know and I can work with that's already in North Carolina, maybe we can support them doing this and maybe we can share a little bit or this group in Australia or this group wherever. Like I said, rather than put your dog on a plane and get on and go every, you know, every carbon mile. Um, But we do need to like be a little more generous amongst ourselves in sharing information and yeah helping get these directions set so that there's like more abundance at the end both you know in terms of biodiversity as well as work for 
conservation detection dog handlers. Yeah, I think this is going to be my last question because I know you have to go, but um, do you know of anyone who has done a good job with some of these kind of remote consulting mentorship projects? You know, having just come back from Kenya and as much as I would love to go back, you know, it also, it isn't necessarily the most effective way to help to kind of have to jet myself in once a year and help out um, and the carbon miles and whatever. I'm almost thinking just mostly as like, who do I need to interview on the podcast? Who has done this well? Do you know of anyone or are we, we're right in the map still? I think we're, yeah, I think we're drawing the map because there's, I mean, we have learned during the pandemic, we can do a lot on Zoom. There's a lot you can't do. There's, you've got to be on the ground, you know, hands on your dog um, or a dog at some point. And there's huge value in showing up in person and having that personal relationship. And we better, we have a, lot to learn about doing a better job with zoom and phone calls and support and building networks like when we're in Kenya or when we're in some place like building those personal relationships so that they're more solid when you are remote so I think I think doing that and certainly there are dogs that can do this work around the world well how do we select them how do we train them how do we care for them you know all of that is still sadly being discussed in places where it should be known right so you know in Africa there are amazing trainers and Mm -hmm. handlers and maybe you know developing rosters of people that are trusted trainers and handlers and welfare experts Mm -hmm. Um, you know there are some of those but they're they're sort of isolated there's the you know canine you know like more of the law enforcement aspects and then there's more the yeah security that there's more of the conservation and those worlds need to blend more yeah 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 absolutely well Megan I know you have to go so thank you for helping me out with this little mini sewed um I think that certainly got me thinking and maybe we'll uh, one of these days one of us well yeah we're both so busy we'll find a time to have more of a full conversation but i really appreciate it oh thanks it was such a pleasure nice to see you so good to see you thank you all so much for listening i hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set you can find show notes donate to canine conservationists and join our patreon at canineconservationists.org until next time